Well, you can grab a seat. Uh, I left my clicker in the back. So you can click to the next slide, though. I mean, the truth is, sometimes we find ourselves unable or unwilling to meet that expectation, right? Sometimes we see that Frisbee, and it's going right there, and we're like, I, yeah, I don't want it. You know, we just, that's not my game. I'm not going to go down that road. Sometimes we find ourselves unable or unwilling to meet certain expectations. Sometimes we have a deadline for a group project, and it, we just, we don't meet it, right? We can't get it in on time. Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's that one guy, Steve. Doesn't give his stuff in. We're like, ah, Steve, right? It happens. Uh, sometimes we want to impress that guy or that girl that we've been crushing on, man, all, all semester. And we're going to ask him out. We have this beautiful moment at the date party. And we're going to get him to go with us. And it's going to be so great. And we find out uh, someone else asked Steve, probably, <laughs> asked her out. We're like, oh, again. That's what he was doing during the group project planning time, right? We, uh, we get upset. Sometimes we have that job interview, that internship interview, and we're so excited. And we're like, man, I know my stuff. I know how to answer the questions. I've got these great questions for them. Uh, and yet we get into that moment and we flub it, right? We get tongue-tied or, or we're, our hands are like way too sweaty. And we're like, oh, and we don't know. We messed it up, right? We don't get it. We don't get the position. Uh, they, they give it to Steve probably. I don't know. But we, we miss out on it. Why? Because we're unable to meet those expectations because sometimes we find ourselves being inadequate. Sometimes we find ourselves ill-equipped to perform whatever the task is at hand. We've all felt that way. We've all been in that situation, looking in at ourselves and deciding, no, like I, I've failed. I, I'm inadequate for this task, for this calling. I mean, the truth is a lot of times we've done this uh, with the Lord. As believers, a lot of times we know, man, there are certain things that God calls me to. There, there's certain ways that he wants me to obey him or, or live for him or act towards the people around me uh, in light of who he is. And yet we find ourselves feeling inadequate. Uh, we have a friend that goes through some tragedy or loss or is just confused. And, and we don't know how to fix that. We don't know the words to, to make everything good. We don't know how to comfort that person in that, in that moment. We find ourselves unable to to lead someone else uh, towards the Lord. We have a really cool conversation and they're asking these questions and yet suddenly they're asking these things about God or about Christianity or about the Bible and, and we look inward and we're like, I, I don't have the answers to this. I, I'm inadequate for this moment. So sometimes we're even scared to even enter into that conversation. We just kind of avoid it. We just watch that Frisbee go by and we say, I, I'm not I'm not ready. Sometimes we find ourselves unable to trust the Lord's plan. Even though we claim that we are following him and we, we, we know that he knows best and we're going to you know, follow him to here and there and we want to obey him and live for him and yet we're uncertain about that job. We're uncertain about that relationship. We're uncertain about our future and we just we shut down and, and we decide, you know, I'm just not ready to step out in, in faith in the Lord in that. I'm just not, I'm not ready. I'm not equipped. I'm not adequate. We, we fail. We find ourselves feeling inadequate. We find ourselves living like that immature believer we talked about a few weeks ago, chapter 6 of Hebrews, who should be pressing on towards maturity, yet is not. Who, who's stuck 
in the infancy stage, who's stuck drinking milk when he should be having solid food, when he should be teaching others. We find ourselves right there. What do we do with that? How, how do we manage that situation? How do we react when we find ourselves failing, when we find ourselves feeling inadequate? Not just for what other people expect of us, but of what God expects of us. What do we do? All semester we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. And we've been doing this in an attempt to better understand who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. Right? The whole book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. And so we've been walking through this and, and learning about how much better he is than all these different things in our world. Which is weird because we live in a world that tells us that, man, we're, we're like the best thing ever. Right? We, we hear that we deserve the best and we are the best. And so we want to know what's best and have the best. Man, we, we want to accumulate the best that this world has to offer. And yet what we see in Hebrews is the author telling us, over and over and over again, that no matter what anyone can think or say or do, that Jesus Christ is always better than all of those things. He's always better. He's better than the idols that we create for ourselves. He's better than the identities that we wrap up uh, around ourselves. He's better than the historical heroes that we find even in Scripture, like Moses or Abraham or Melchizedek. We see that he's better than anything this world has to offer. He's better than anything this church has to offer, than any church has to offer. He's better than our priests. He's better than our sacrifices. He's better than anything. And what we see in chapter 8 of Hebrews is basically all of that coming to a head. All of that information. A few weeks ago, you might remember, we were talking about the fact that he's our high priest, the one who's in heaven going before the Father as our representative, serving in a way that, that allows us to approach the throne of God with confidence our high priest in the heavenly places who loves us, who cares for us, who can relate to us, who, is sac- who, who was sacrificed for us. And because of that standing, because of that position, what we're going to see in chapter 8 is all of that's going to come to a head and he's going to use all of that authority. He's going to use all of that perfection. He's going to use all of those accomplishments that he's had and he's going to channel them into one Thing. He's going to offer through all of that he's accomplished. He's going to offer to us a covenant. He's going to offer to us a promise. He's going to use his position of authority. He's going to use that high heavenly place to issue a promise. Something that we call the new covenant. And through this new covenant, we are now able to find ourselves equipped. We're now able to find ourselves adequate for the calling in our lives. Not because we somehow just figure out the secret formula and we follow these three easy steps and suddenly I'm just the best. No, we are find ourselves equipped. We find ourselves adequate because it's the Lord working through us. That's what the new covenant promises. That God will provide what he requires. That God will equip and prepare us for the calling that he places before us. That's what we see in the new covenant. That's what we see in Hebrews 8. And we can only see that because of the fact that Jesus is better than anything, including our inadequacies. Now, as we start off this chapter, we need to always remember the context of this book. Where right? we said it week in, week out. And to understand the content that we're wrestling with, we have to remember the context. And the key context for this passage in particular is the audience that's being addressed. We're looking at most likely a group of Jewish believers in the early 60s A.D., 
Jewish believers, meaning they were raised in Judaism, raised following the commands, the Mosaic law, and that's how they were raised. They knew Moses, they knew Abraham, they knew Isaac and Jacob. They knew all these heroes of the faith. They knew Yahweh. That's the one that they worshiped. That's the one they sacrificed to on the reg. And yet they have decided, they've realized, they've been called by the Holy Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ. They realize that Jesus Christ is in fact the only hope, that he is the promised Messiah. And so these people are wrestling with the fact that they are Jewish and yet they follow Christ, who the rest of the Jewish community call a heretic, a liar. They, they, they denounce him with just the utmost hatred. And so suddenly they find themselves torn between two worlds and suddenly the world around them is kind of coming in and they're starting to get persecuted a little bit. And so they're thinking, man, maybe I don't want to, maybe I don't want to stay here. Like maybe I don't want to be attacked from both sides. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to them to encourage them, to remind them of how amazing Christ is, of how incredible it is that they are following God who stepped out of heaven and onto earth, who took the form of man to live, die, and rise again on their behalf. He's reminding them, man, I promise that Jesus is better than all of these things, than all, all of your worries, all of your concerns. And so he starts off in chapter 8, basically summing up those first seven chapters, saying, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. If you'll remember, we touched on this two weeks ago, but he's saying, look, we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate high priest. Why? Because he's serving in heaven. Because he's not here. He's not stuck here on earth with us. He's in the true throne room of the Lord. He has a much higher, better position than any other priest we've ever seen. We talked about that when we looked at Melchizedek. He says, the truth is, the the priest that we have here, the the religion that we have here, the churches we have here, man, it's nothing. He says, the priests here, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, meaning the tabernacle, he says, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses followed God's command. Right? He built the tent, the tabernacle, uh, which was basically just a mobile uh, temple that they could use. They could break it down, set it back up. In case you're interested, there is one in College Station right now. Uh, some group, they like put together an accurate to the Bible tabernacle. It's over off Highway 6 towards university. Uh, and you can just go walk through and see it and be like, whoa, crazy. I don't know. I don't know what your reaction will be. Hopefully you're like, whoa, and you just can't speak for like a week. But it's, it's cool. And so the Lord told Moses how to build it. Like God wanted the tabernacle to exist. It's not like they built it and God's like, what are you? Like he wanted it. And so he's saying, look, Moses built it. But the truth is, is that even the best that Moses could accomplish, it's a copy, man, it's a shadow. Even right now, at this point, they aren't using the tabernacle anymore. They have an actual temple, a permanent temple built by King Solomon. And that thing is amazing. It is beautiful. And every Jew, they make an effort every single year to go to that temple, to offer sacrifices, to worship the Lord, to walk in, just be amazed at the splendor of what God accomplished, of what God built for himself. And he says, you know what, that thing, that's a shadow. It's just like the briefest hint of what is actually up in heaven. 
where Christ is serving. This thing is, it's just, it's not the real thing. It's, it's, it's a hint of it. It's not, it's not real. The same way that, you know, you don't give an actual car to a child, but you can give them like a power wheel, right? You can trust, you know, little Jimmy and his, I think, intoxicated brother, Timmy, like to like <laughs> sit in that power wheel and they'll drive around your backyard all day. That's great. You know, that's awesome. And kids love them, man. Kids love them almost like too much. Like, right? You know, they're like, they're having like too much fun. You're like, whoa, like what? What's going on in that Cadillac? You know, like what's, what's going on in the back of that Escalade? Like, I don't know what's happening. Uh, and it's, but it's amazing, right? And, I, and even seeing these pictures now, like as a grown adult who can like buy cars legally, uh, I still want that, you know? Like I, there's still something in us. Like, we have real cars, and yet we're still like, I want that power wheel. Like, I don't know why. There's something deep within us. And, and, but we know it's not the real thing, right? You can trust it with a kid. Uh, you can trust a kid maybe sometimes. Sometimes you can't really trust them, and they abuse their power wheel privileges. Uh, <laughs> and they cuff their sisters on the hood. But, you know, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, and kids, they, they do this. Why, why do they even want this, though? Why do you, you look at kids? Man, I, I remember just being so torn up because I never had one. I never had a power wheel. Oh, well. Next time that I'm a kid. But we, I wanted one. Man, for those of us that did, I'm just How many of us had a power wheel? I'm just, oh, are you kidding? Man. Well, my parents lied to me because they said, like, no one had them. But I knew it. I knew that y'all were out there. Uh, but... Why, why did we love them so much? Why did we want, why are some of us, again, still, like, as, like, 21-year-olds, like, we saw those hands, we're like, ugh. You know, like, why? Because there's something within us that desires that kind of elevated level. There's something in a kid that sees a parent driving around, they see real cars on the road, and they're like, I, I want to be a part of that. Like, I, I want to have just, like, a, a glimpse of that. I want to be uh, just the hint, even just a hint. I'll take the hint. That's why kids play with like toy little lawnmowers and toy kitchens and toy banks. And like, why? Because they see it in the real world and they're like, I want to be a part of that. The author of Hebrews is telling us that's what our priests are. That's what our churches are. That's what religion is. It's just an attempt to kind of get into that realm, that spiritual realm where the Lord resides. And yet Jesus Christ is in the real thing. All of our priests are stuck driving those little Escalade power wheels. And Jesus Christ is rolling around. I don't know, like a jet, like something way better, like something completely different. He says, Jesus Christ is so much higher. And this isn't just to make us think like, wow, that is amazing. It's not just to impress us with how amazing Jesus Christ is, that he is God. But it's also to increase not just his glory, it's meant to increase our confidence in him. Because if you see someone in that higher place, your confidence will increase. I'm not going to trust like Julie, the power wheel cuffer. Like, I'm not going to trust her with an actual crime. Like, something happens on my street. There's like, you know, I don't know, a dog napping. I'm not going to call Julie and be like, Julie, I need you to get down here. There's been a triple homicide in my cul-de-sac. Like, that's not, that's not a conversation we're going to have. Why? Because I'm not confident in her ability to solve that problem. She might be able to. She looks pretty tough, but she might not. I'm not confident in that. Jesus Christ is about to offer something so earth-shattering, something so different, something so new. The author wants to remind us, look, he is worthy of your confidence. He's worthy of your trust. He's about to rock your world, but you can trust him because he's the high priest in the heavenly place. So we can be confident 
when he promises us this new covenant. It says, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. It says there's going to be this different covenant. He says it's better. It's more excellent. It's better. It's better. It's better, better, better. Like he just says it over and over three times in one verse just to help us realize, man, yeah, like this is, this is a big deal. This is a new covenant that's going to be better than the things before it. And when I say covenant, when he's talking about a covenant, just know that that is essentially uh, an agreement between two parties with uh, some sort of promise and some, some sort of terms attached to it. Right, so it's just sort of an agreement, a contract. Like we still do this, right? Like we have contracts. Uh, I'll tell you, you buy a house one day, you will sign like so many pieces of paper. Uh, and that's a contract. It's a binding agreement between two parties with certain terms, with certain promises. Uh, I tell the bank, like, I will pay you for this house. They say, I will let you live in it for a while. And that's, that's the promise that we're making to one another. Back then... They had covenants a lot of times, and they, they were a little different than ours, right? Like we do handshakes, we sign pieces of paper. They would have handshakes, they would sign pieces of paper, but as they signed the piece of paper, they're like, okay, so you will live in this house and let us kill this goat to commemorate the occasion. Like they would, do, they would add on these really weird rituals. One of my favorites is they would, two parties, they're making an agreement with one another, uh, they each take off one shoe and they hand it to each other. And so suddenly I'm wearing like one brown shoe and one blue shoe. And I'm like, okay, I love your fashion sense and shoes. And when we finish this contract, when it comes, when it's completed, we'll switch back again. So you wear, you have this other guy's shoe until whatever, until he mows your lawn or until you pay off the house or whatever it is. And so they would have these different rituals attached to it. That's a lot of times their covenants, that's how they worked. And so when we're looking at this covenant, there's going to be promises, there's going to be terms. And the reality is that we've seen covenants before, even between God and his people. This is a new covenant. And it doesn't just mean that it's new in the sense that it's more recent. When we look in the Greek, the the term that's being used here is it denotes a new substance, a new material. Like it's made of something different. Same way that a cotton shirt or like a silk shirt, like it's, it's different. That's what we see in these, in the new covenant. That's what's being conveyed is that it's new. It's, it's different. And it's very, at its very core, it's very, very different. Very different from the covenant that we've seen before that didn't work. The, the author says if, if that first covenant had been, if it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He's referring to, and he'll explain a little bit further, he's talking about the, the Mosaic covenant, uh, what we often call the law it's the, the covenant that God made between himself and his people where he said, look, there, here's all these things you need to do. These are all the commandments you need to keep. And if you can keep all of them, that's great. You deserve blessing and honor and glory. Says, but if you don't meet these expectations, if you fail in these rules, if you don't do these certain things, you'll deserve curses. You'll deserve punishment. You'll deserve death. And so Moses takes all these things, right? We have the most famous tent, the first 10, those 10 commandments. It's part of the Mosaic covenant, part of the law, but there are way, way more. And so he brings all of them, gathers it all together, gets it all written down on stone tablets. Exodus 24, he gets to the bottom of the mountain. He says, this is what the Lord wants for us. Speaks to the nation of Israel, says, this is what God has asked of us. This is what he commands. And he reads off the whole law. And they say, okay, yeah, we're going to do that. But it doesn't work. There was fault in that covenant. Why? Did God give a 
bad covenant? Did God not think through the way it should work? Did, were there loopholes or something? No. There was nothing wrong with the covenant itself. In fact, God, speaking of the Lord, for he, the Lord, finds fault with them, Israel. When the Lord says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So as God looked at that situation, that covenant, that Mosaic covenant, that law, and it didn't work. Why? Because of the people involved in it. It wasn't the covenant itself. It wasn't the Lord. It was Israel. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It was Israel. Even Moses himself, right? Their big, super awesome God-appointed leader. He himself failed. He himself fell away. He himself was not faithful to the point where God denied him entrance into the promised land, where God took his life, man. He's on a cliff looking out the promise saying, God says, you're never going to go in there. He's done. Why? Because Moses failed. The people failed. This is God breaking up with the nation of Israel, essentially. He's breaking up with the company. He says, it's not me. It's, it's you. He just lays it out straight. And they're like, ooh. They try to take a sip of their chai tea latte, but it just doesn't taste as good anymore, right? This is an intense moment. He says, I found fault with them. They were at fault. This is a problem. And so I need something new. I need to establish a new covenant. I need to establish a covenant that's made of something different. Because the reality is that these people, man, they can't cut it. Because the Mosaic covenant, the problem was that it showed, my goodness, it, it showed what holiness looked like. It was great at demonstrating how holy the Lord was, how perfect the Lord was. And yet it did not provide change for the people involved. It did not provide forgiveness, honestly. There was no change. There was no forgiveness. And so all it did over and over and over again was show people how horrible they were. When I was at Texas A&M, living in a house with four other dudes, every once in a while we would go to a girl's house. And we would walk in and we would think, this is, this is hollowed ground. <laughs> There's something... What is that smell? Is that, it smells like not death. Like what's going on? Like what, what is this place? And we would realize, oh my gosh, it's clean. Like it smells good. Like we would go in their kitchen and I legitimately remember thinking like, they have paper towels like in their kitchen. <laughs> right there. Like, and it was amazing. And we would walk through, man, we would hang out with people there and we'd be like, oh my gosh, this is, this is great. Like this is what I want. This is what I want from my life. I want to live and this, and yet we would go home and we would be back in just the disgusting squalor of our abode. And we would go into our, there's no paper towel. We had not, man, we would go back home and we, our cleaning supplies consisted of like a cup that we'd fill with water and just like splash it stuff. Like that was it. And so we would see this beautiful thing in front of us, and yet we would go home. It would be terrible still. Why? Because seeing that amazingness was great, but it did nothing to change our motivation. It did nothing to pick us up off the couch. It did nothing to stop us from playing FIFA and actually go and clean things. It did nothing about the fact that we lacked any cleaning supplies whatsoever. Seeing the law, looking at the external law, man, it did a great job of showing the Israelites how terrible they were over and over and over and over again, yet it did nothing to change them at their core. It did nothing to change their desires, to change their abilities. There was nothing going on. And so the Lord takes a completely different route. 
He says, this first, this first covenant, man, they did not continue in it. And because of that, I showed no concern for them. Remember, I, I, I had to just, I broke it off. I let an entire generation, that very first generation that got the Mosaic covenant, they all died. Except for a few, just a few people. They all died in the desert. Millions of people died in the desert. Never getting to that promised land. Because they did not continue Because instead of earning blessing, they earned curses. They earned death. God says, I'm going to have to take a different route. So I'm going to have to make this work somehow, somehow differently. I'm going to have to take on the burden. I'm establishing a new covenant. The biggest shift that we see is that this new covenant is going to be made through grace. Meaning that God is going to give his people something that they don't deserve. That's what grace is, that you are given something that you don't deserve. Suddenly we see in the new covenant, God dealing with his people, not uh, through law and merit, but dealing with his people through grace and mercy. This is why we as believers know, should proclaim from the rooftops that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That there's nothing we do. There are no works involved. None of us have any reason to boast. Anything we have, any response we've given to the Lord, any, uh, any time we find ourselves actually walking in obedience, it's not us. Man, that wasn't me. That was God. It was God in his grace through this new covenant. What we see, or we see this summed up in verse 10 where the Lord is describing the covenant. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. God immediately shifts his language. You see, three times, three times in this verse, he says it about eight times through the passage. He says, I will do this. I will make this covenant. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will be their God. He's shifting it from that Exodus 24 where Moses walks down, says, look at all these commandments. And the people say, we will do this. I mean, that's what they say, Exodus 24. They say, we will keep all of those commands. We will absolutely do what the Lord commands. And they don't. And so God says, I will. I will make these things happen. Through his grace, God promises change. He promises to change our desires, to change our, our ability to obey. How? Because he's going to go internal, right? That first covenant, it was, it was an external thing. It was written on stone, on tablets that people could look at and then walk away from and completely forget. God says this new covenant, it's going to be written on their hearts. It's going to be written on their minds. It's going to change them from the inside out. This is the difference between someone just wearing A&M gear and someone actually being an Aggie, right? Anybody can put on the A&M hat and be like, yeah, I do love Johnny football, A&M Reveille. Like someone can say that, (laughs) but it's something else entirely for someone to truly be an Aggie. Anyone can technically put on an Aggie ring, but only an Aggie has their name written on the inside who can put it on and be like, hmm, yeah, that's it. You, that, you learn the secret handshake, right? I can't, well, you know, forget I said anything about that. But, uh, you know, you, you hear, some of you know, right? But we, we hear or we see people and they can put on these external appearances and, and that's great, but it really, really takes you so far. 
there's a big difference between me forcing myself to eat lima beans, right? For me personally, lima, oh my goodness, lima beans. I can't, I'm not even going to say the word again because it's, I want to throw up. So they, I can force myself to eat them, those little sin nuggets. Like I can force myself <laughs> to eat them. There's a big difference between me eating them and me enjoying them. There's a huge difference. Why? Because it depends on my taste. God is saying, I'm going to move into these people and I'm going to change their hearts and their minds. I'm going to move in. They're not just going to force themselves to obey me. They're not just going to put on my hats. They're not just going to eat the things that I tell them to eat. They are going to actually enjoy it. They are actually going to enjoy obeying me. They're going to be changed. Their desires will be different. Their ability will be different. Why? Because they're able to just suddenly decide, I'm going to change my... No, because God himself says, I will make it happen. I will write it on their hearts. I will write it on their minds. I'll tell you, this is something that for whatever reason we forget. This is something that we as believers, you know, where we are now, I mean, there's something within us that makes us think that we're saved by grace and yet, we have to fulfill our life according to that law. There's something within us that wants to take in just a little bit of credit is what I think it is ultimately. And so we will take the new covenant for our salvation. And yet we hold on to the law. We hold on to the Mosaic covenant for our sanctification. Meaning we think that we can just buck up and live the way that God wants us to live and somehow earn his credit, somehow earn his, his favor, his love. Paul wrote an entire book about this called Galatians. It's all about the fact that we don't live under the law anymore, that we live under Christ, the law of Christ, which is built on grace, on forgiveness, not on merit, not on works. And he says some people, though, they're going to try to justify themselves. They're going to try to earn God's favor through works. He says those people have fallen away from grace. I love his language. These people are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Other translations will say, you have fallen from grace. That's who these people are. And man, we find, them, we find ourselves there. I find myself there where I want to do these things. I'm upset about certain things. Man, I'll, just to be honest, this morning in giving this talk, I just felt like, man, there were certain things that didn't line up quite right. There were certain things that didn't quite click. And so I found myself beating myself up about it. In the afternoon, I was just thinking back. I was like, ah, oh, I need to change that. I need to tweak these things. And, and it was one of those things where I had to stop and think like, why am I so upset right now? Like, why, why is this really bothering me? And it's because there's something within me that wants to impress, not people, but there's some, or I mean that as well, but there's something in me that wants to impress the Lord, that wants to somehow earn his favor. And we've all got it. And Paul says that is, that is misguided. We're trying to be holy by following God's law, but Galatians tells us, Romans is going to tell us in a minute, Hebrews is telling us right now, we are not made holy by trying to follow God's law. We are made holy by submitting to God's spirit. We are made holy by just giving in and leaning into the new covenant, the new promises given to us. Because Christ is perfect, because Christ fulfilled the entire law. All the law and all the prophets, it's summed up in Christ. The only per, he's the only one that was ever able to keep all those commandments. And yet he's willing to then die so that he can offer that righteousness, he can offer that perfection to us. So we need to quit resisting that. We need to realize that God has promised us 
grace. He's promised us change. And he also promises us something so beautiful in the new covenant. He promises us forgiveness. It says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant, it promises forgiveness. It brings resolution where the law simply brought remembrance. As I said, the law over and over and over again just points out, oh, you messed up, you messed up. You weren't supposed to eat that. You weren't supposed Shrimp? What? Like, put it back. Like, you're not supposed to eat those things. Over and over and over again, they would look and be like, oh my gosh, I said like 27 times today. And the fact that I missed two, uh, and I said 28. Like, they, they get so frustrated because all the law does is it brings up, it brings to light their sin, their, their problems. The Mosaic covenant, the old law, it simply brought remembrance of their issues. There was no resolution to be found. Paul sums this up in Romans by saying, by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight. Why? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. So as soon as you open up the law, you're like, oh, yep, yep, didn't do that, didn't do that, didn't do that, definitely did that, shouldn't have. Like that, do we just go through the list? All the law does is point out how terrible and fallen we are. Ultimately, that was part of God's plan. That's the argument that God, or that Paul makes uh, in Romans. He makes it really hard in Galatians saying, look, that was the point of the law. That's why there was no problem with that covenant. It was part of the Lord's plan to show us, wow, I can't do it on my own. That's why Christ himself comes down to earth, starts speaking on some of the law things. And some of the people, man, they were convinced that they had had all, they all figured it out. They were like, man, yeah, I've kept all these different commandments. I've never murdered anyone. Right? Cause that's, that's pretty easy, I think, uh, to, to not, you know, not commit. But Christ rolls up into town. He says, yeah, you know what? Uh, if you think just like hateful thoughts about someone, same thing as murdering him. And suddenly all these people are like, oh my God, man, they're just... They're so upset because they're like, oh my gosh, like how, I can't win. I can't win. And God's like, exactly. <laughs> That's why this exists. So Paul tells us exactly. No one can keep all these laws. And if you think you are, that's pride and boom, you're, you're done. Like you just get sin. <laughs> That's all that happens when we try to follow the law. And yet, man, there's something in us. Again, we try to do it. And the new covenant, it walks into that moment and says, I'm not going to hold you to that anymore. Because just pointing it out over and over again, man, that does, that does nothing. Uh, my daughter, about three months old, Charlotte, this is her when you put her on her stomach right now. Okay? She's getting a little bit better. This is a couple weeks old. But you put her on her stomach. They call it tummy time. And it's important for children's development, apparently. And you put her on their stomach and you're like, okay, lift up your head. That's all you want them to do. Is you're like, you just want them to lift up your head, build up those neck muscles. Problem with Charlotte is that uh, she is incredibly long as a baby. She also has an enormous head. She's like 96th percentile cranial size. And so she gets on the ground. We put it on her stomach and this is basically it. Like you put it on her tummy and she's just, and every once in a while it's like, like that's it. That's all that happens. She's getting better though. She's getting better. But in these moments, right, like it, there's nothing, nothing is accomplished when my wife and I are sitting there and I'm just like, yeah, her head is, her head's still down. Yeah, it's still down, still down. And I can tell her, right? I could even tell Charlotte, like, hey, your head, hey, your, your face is still, still just flat on the ground, baby. You know, you just, that's what you do. You're still failing. But like, if I did that, nothing would be accomplished. Instead, what do we do? We try to help her. We try to get her arms under her and like help show her like, okay, this is what you need to do. Like, watch dad. Like, you know, we try to help her in that moment 
We want to change her. We want to assist her. We want to equip her to change. The Mosaic covenant, the law, all it did was point over and over again, heads down, heads down, heads down, heads down, heads down. God says, I'm going to give a new covenant. One that's going to be changed. And one that's going to bring forgiveness. One that's going to look at that moment when our head falls flat back on the floor. Because it's going to happen. And he's going to forgive us in that moment. Because the reality is that even as God is changing things within us, even as he's changing our our desires, he's changing our abilities, equipping us, we're still going to find ourselves in those moments. We already thought of it, maybe already tonight. We were going to find ourselves in those moments where we're like, man, I just bombed that. I just can't trust the Lord in this. I'm just, I'm inadequate for this calling. I, I can't go there. I can't say those words. I can't perform those tasks. And God says, it's okay. I'm going to still forgive you. Because the reality is that we're not fully changed, right? We don't have a completely new nature. We're not free of sin and imperfection. We know this to be true because we're, we're all headed towards death. And that's the product of sin. We all have conflicting natures. Paul says that his spirit is so willing in certain things that the Lord calls him to. He's, his spirit is so willing to obey the Lord and yet his flesh is weak. That's where we find ourselves. Torn between wanting to follow the Lord and yet wanting to still follow our own desires. Still want to fall under that, that lineage of Adam. As Paul sums it up in Romans. And God says... I forgive you. I forgive you in those moments. And that doesn't mean that he forgets about it. It doesn't mean that the Lord suddenly is just like oblivious to our sin. He doesn't watch you like approach that sin. You're about to go into it and God's like, oh, bum, 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 nom, 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 la, la, la. Like he doesn't turn his gaze away to like not catch him. Be like, oh, whoo, whoo, you know, or make himself forget. That's not forgiveness. The way that God has forgiven us is that he looks at us. He knows what we've done. He, he knows those, those sins. He knows those iniquities. He knows those failures. And yet he says, I'm not going to treat you, or I'm going to treat you as if you had not done those things. That's the way we should forgive. Not that we try to forget what someone's done to us or we just pretend like it never happened. We know what happened. We know the fact that they hurt us. We know about that time that they really, really hurt that person that we love. We know it. We remember it. And yet... We treat them as if they had not done that. We treat others as if they had not sinned. Why? Because our God treated his son as if he had. Because God looked at Jesus Christ. God made flesh. Perfection. Who knew every temptation and yet knew no sin. The one who fulfilled every single commandment, every single law, the one who deserved all righteousness, who did not deserve death in the slightest. God looked at him and said, I'm going to treat you as if you had committed every single sin that's ever been committed ever across all time. And he put all that on Christ. Christ took that all upon himself. He became sin for us so that we might have eternal life. So that one of us still just deep in our own sin can look at that, recognize the brokenness, recognize the fact that I can't do anything to fix it, and yet at the same time recognize that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again in order to fix it. That Jesus Christ himself 
if I'm just willing to trust in him, if I'm willing to ask him for forgiveness, if I'm willing to, to place my faith in him, in his life and death and resurrection, if I'm able to trust in that, suddenly I'm given eternal life. Suddenly I am able to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Man, I've experienced such great forgiveness. If you are a Christian, you've experienced such incredible forgiveness that you have no option but to extend forgiveness to other people. The new covenant has forgiven us so much. So we need to pay that on, man. We need to keep moving that forward. We've been promised this grace. We've been promised this change. We've been promised this forgiveness. And what's beautiful about all these promises is that they are permanent, that they are eternal, that they last forever. Author says, in speaking of this new covenant, God is making the first one obsolete. What's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We try to hold on to that old covenant, we try to hold on to that Mosaic law. The reality is that, that doesn't govern us anymore. His audience at this time, especially Jewish believers, they're surrounded by family members, their dads and moms and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts, uh, their neighbors, their f- best friends since elementary school. Like their people around them, they are still under the Mosaic law. They're still following all those commandments or performing those sacrifices and doing these different things. And they're looking at the Christians and the Jews are like, man, what is wrong with you? Like you are following this heretic, this thing that's been around for maybe 30 years at this point. And they're like, what in the world is wrong with you? Judaism has been around for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Tried and true. We worship Yahweh, the true God. I mean, you, what are you doing? You're on the shaky ground. We're on this solid rock. And yet what they didn't realize was a few years after this book was written, just a few years, by, in 70 AD, Romans roll up into town, roll up into Jerusalem. They say, yeah, I don't want that temple to be there anymore. And they just pff, trash it. They say, yeah, I don't want these Israelites to really be here anymore. So they just pff, take all these people out. Suddenly in 70 AD, the Israelites find themselves with no temple, with no priesthood. And you know what? They still don't have either one of those things. They never came back. They have no temple. They have no priesthood because they can't track it. They have no idea who's in that lineage anymore. What they thought was so solid, what they thought was so sure, obsolete, grew old. God said, I'm not working in that way anymore. So I'm offering up something new, something different. So man, my my challenge for us tonight, for this week, for the rest of the semester is, man, what's that thing that we're still holding to? Where do we need to ask the Holy Spirit to change our desires? change our ability? Where are we still holding on to our own personal ability, our own personal desire to to try to get these things done? Where do we need to just trust that the Holy Spirit will come in and and change us from the inside out to, to push us towards obedience? Or maybe where do we need to just trust the Holy Spirit to minister to us in our faults and our failures? Where do we need to trust that God still forgives us even when we fail, even when we are inadequate? For some of us, that's stepping out in faith in a lot of different ways. Whether it's being willing to have that conversation with your lab partner, whether that's willing to act more, different, act more lovingly in your house, act differently around your family members, around your friend group. For some of you, it's going to be, I need to step out in faith, and even though I don't feel equipped to lead people in this organization or, or that environment, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust the Lord to equip me. I'm going to trust the Lord's call and that he's going to provide what he's asking for. That's why we've been pushing leadership the last few weeks here at Grace. 
Again, not so that we can fill up our ranks and wave our banner even higher. Like our goal is to put you in a spot where the Lord is free, where you have opened yourself up to the Lord's work to change your desires, to change your abilities, to equip you to lead people in, in Bible study or in, or in community uh, outreach or service. Man, we want to give you those opportunities. You can still go online. Just you don't feel ready. That's okay. God doesn't call the equipped, man. He equips those that he calls. Maybe it's here, Grace. Maybe it's somewhere else. Either way, man, we're going to take some time. We're going to ask the Lord, man, where is that? Right, we started about a month ago, uh, something that I've just loved, where we are taking advantage of the fact that we're surrounded by men and women who are pursuing the same God. Right, we're all doing this together in a sense, right? High school musical style. Like we are all heading on the same path. And so it's crazy that we come together, we look this way at a band or a person or a screen, and then we leave after an hour and 15 to 20 minutes. And that's nuts. We, we can look to the side and see, wow, there's this guy, there's this girl, there's these people that are all trying to pursue the same God. So what we're going to do here uh, for a few minutes is we're going to pray with one another. We're going to grab a, one partner or maybe two partners and we're going to talk with them. If you know them, that's great. If you don't know them, just get to know them really, really fast. Uh, and you're going to be praying for this person. You're going to be praying for them tonight. I would encourage you, uh, try to make a mental note, try to make a commitment to really pray for them throughout the rest of the week. Let's make it more than just a Sunday night thing. You're going to be praying for this person. They're going to share with you, be thinking and, and be ready to share with one another I mean, where you want to trust the Lord this week. Despite your inadequacy, is it, is it the promised change? Is it the promised forgiveness? Where are you needing to open yourself up? Where are you going to ask the Spirit to move? You can be as specific as you want. You can be as vague as you want. But take a few minutes right now. Share with one or two people. Where is it that you want the Holy Spirit to move? Where can they be praying that the Holy Spirit would move into your life, affect change? Share that with each other right now. I'll grab us up in a minute. God, we, we thank you that, that you are so good, that God, that you are, are willing to, to move in and, and make promises that have absolutely no, uh, uh, depend, it does not depend on us in, in the least, that God, there is no requirement for us to, to do the right thing, to say the right thing, God, to, to move and go to that place or perform these rituals. God, we thank you that this new covenant, this better covenant, this better promise is something that you have offered us through grace. God, we thank you for that, that beautiful, beautiful thing. God, that, that salvation that is so unique across all the ways that people try to approach God. Lord, we, we recognize that this is, this is something different. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in, in such an incredible way. That, God, you minister to us through, through song and, God, through prayer and, Lord, through your word. God, we thank you that you, you minister to us through the men and women that, that suddenly find themselves walking alongside of us on, on this path. God, we thank you that we are not alone in this endeavor, that we are not isolated in our attempt to rely on your spirit to, to change our desires and to change our abilities, God, to, to push us towards obedience. So we thank you that we can look to our left and to our right, and we can see other men, other women that are, 
that are striving to obey in the same ways we are, God, that are failing in the same ways that we are. God, we pray that we would come up alongside one another, that we would encourage each other, that God, we would push up one another on towards you, that God, we would, we would take advantage of the fact that you've surrounded us with like-minded men and women, brothers and sisters, that God, we are one family sharing in one spirit. But God, we recognize that there are others that we will come across that are not a part of this family. That God, there are going to be others who are lost and confused and hopeless. God, we ask that we would be bold and willing to step into those lives and share the same hope. God, share the same truth. If you would, take a moment right now and on your own, just ask the Lord would provide an opportunity this week to share these promises with someone else. Maybe it's an in, in an official capacity because you're leading somewhere. Or maybe it's just grabbing your roommate and having a serious talk for once. Or maybe it's having that conversation with your lab partner. You ask him out to coffee after class. Or maybe it's making that phone call to that family member, to that loved one that you, you just, you know it needs to happen and yet you're not ready to step out. Ask of the Lord that would, would motivate you would change your desires, would, would give you, equip you where you feel inadequate, would, would push you to that point, would give you an opportunity to share this hope with someone who needs it. Ask the Lord to, to start working on that right now, to maybe bring a name to your mind, a face to your mind, to maybe just start working on your heart, to shift your desires. Ask Him to give you that opportunity this week. Ask Him that right now.